Hey folks, this is John Lawrence, and I'm super excited to bring you this series of podcasts. I've collaborated with a couple of DNP students out of Marion University, and they have uh, brought you six educational podcasts on the fundamentals of anesthesia. And I'm so excited to get this out to you. We've been planning this for, I don't know, maybe close to a year, but uh, let me introduce them to you. So, I'm here today on the podcast with Skylar Ruschling. She is a second-year SRNA at Marion University in Indianapolis, Indiana. She attended Ball State University for her undergraduate education, where she earned her BSN in 2013. Skylar went on to work in the medical ICU at a level one trauma center in downtown Indianapolis for five years before returning to school to complete her doctorate of nursing practice degree. She is expected to graduate in May of 2020. And Ashley Scheel is also a second year SRNA at Marion University. She earned her BSN from Purdue University in 2012. Ashley worked as a nurse in the surgical ICU at the Radebush VA Medical Center in Indianapolis for six years before going back to anesthesia school. She is also expected to graduate in May of 2020 with her DMP degree. Uh, Skylar and Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Hey, John. Hey, John. Hey everyone, I'm Skylar, and yeah, we're actually part of the inaugural class of um, the first nurse anesthesia program to open in Indiana. Um, so we're on track to earn our DMP degree, and in order to fulfill this degree, we're going to be completing a research project. So ours is titled Podcast as a Learning Adjunct in Nurse Anesthesia Education. Hey everyone, it's Ashley here. We became interested in this topic because we found ourselves listening to a lot of podcasts while driving to and from clinicals, and we thought it would be beneficial to be able to listen to foundational anesthesia content geared specifically towards SRNAs. Um, we're going to be measuring the satisfaction of SRNAs within our own program, but we really do hope that these podcasts help other SRNAs and CRNAs as well. Uh, we really want to thank you, John, for allowing us the opportunity to host our podcasts on From the Head of the Bed. Hey, I am so pumped about this. I think you all have done a really good job developing the content, and I can't wait to bring these episodes to people. So let's cut to the chase. Let's get to the shows. All right, Ashley, well, I'm super pumped to talk about the anesthesia machine today. So I appreciate you developing this podcast, and uh, let's get to it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me again. Uh, hey everyone, so we're going to be going pretty in-depth today through the details of the anesthesia machine, so hang in there through the length of this episode. Um, let's discuss the pressure systems, go through the flow of gas through the machine, touching on gas supply, processing, delivery, and disposal, and then finish things up by discussing some of the details of different anesthesia machine components, as well as a few highlights of ventilator settings. And finally, some troubleshooting concepts to keep in mind. We'll start with um, just a basic overview of the anesthesia machine components. So we've got the volatile anesthetic vaporizers, the ventilator, the breathing system, the scavenging system, the patient monitors, and then, of course, the machine itself. So we'll jump right into those three pressure systems that we talked about, and those are the high, intermediate, and low pressure systems. So high... Um, that's variable pressure, and it usually comes from cylinder gas supply. So on that cylinder, there's the hanger yoke, and that attaches the E-cylinder to the machine using the pin index safety system, and some people refer to it as the PIS. Um, and then in addition, there's the yoke block with check valves, and those check valves prevent retrograde or backflow of gas from the machine into the E-cylinders. And then we have the cylinder pressure gauge. It's also called the burden gauge, and it depicts the amount of pressure that's in the E-cylinder. And then finally, we have the cylinder pressure regulators, and those reduce the cylinder pressure to 45, between 45 and 47 PSI. And for comparison, pipeline pressure is approximately 50 PSI. So because the reduced cylinder pressure is slightly lower than pipeline pressure, it allows for that preferential use of pipeline gas if it's present, and it prevents the silent depletion of cylinder contents if the, the tanks are accidentally left open or if they're even required to, to be open depending on what machine you have. So let's move on now to intermediate pressure. That intermediate pressure is a constant pressure, and like I just went over, the, the pressure is approximately 50 PSI. The different components of it are the pipeline inlets, including the check valves and the pressure gauges. The check valves are actually a one-way valve that prevent the backflow of gas from the machine 
uh, back to the pipeline, just like what happens with the e-cylinders. Um, then we have the ventilator power inlet. We have the oxygen pressure failure devices, and these help to prevent the hypoxic mixtures of gases. We also have the flow meter valves, which are the, the knobs of the flow meters themselves. And then the oxygen second stage pressure regulator is present in some machines. Mostly older machines have this, and its purpose is to drop the pipeline pressure and cylinder pressure a second time. And then lastly, we have that oxygen flush valve. Jumping right into the low pressure now, we've got a variable pressure again, just like the E-cylinders and the high pressure. So included in the low pressure is the flow meter tubes, the vaporizers, the unidirectional check valves if they're present, and those are located between the vaporizer and common gas outlet. Um, we've also got the pressure relief valve or the adjustable pressure limiting valve, also known as the APL. And finally, the common gas outlet. So now that we've gone through the pressure systems, let's go ahead and talk about the flow of gas through the machine. And we'll, we'll include in that the supply of the gas, the processing through the machine, the delivery of the gases to the patients, and then the disposal of the gas. So we'll start with supply here. Gas enters through the back of the machine via the pipeline or the cylinders. Let's start with the pipeline, and that is, of course, that intermediate pressure that we talked about. And hoses uh, are connected to wall outlets or an overhead boom that then lead to the machine. And that pipeline pressure has a safety system, and that uh, we talked about a little bit is the diameter index safety system. And what that is is a non-interchangeable uh, fitting that prevents the incorrect hose attachment uh, to the wall or that overhead boom. The hose and the hole in the wall or the boom have the same shape. For example, it could be a square or a circle or a circle within another circle, uh, et cetera, but there's no, uh, there's no two hoses that have the same shapes to them. So now we'll switch over to the, the cylinders, and that's again that high pressure system, and it's connected to the machine via that hanger yoke. Um, and then, then there's that set of filters and check valves we talked about, that pressure gauge that tells us how much pressure the e-cylinder e is under, and then that pressure regulator that again reduces that pressure in the cylinders between 45 and 47 PSI. And after that pressure is reduced, that, uh, that signifies the beginning of intermediate pressure. So then let's focus here on these safety systems uh, in the cylinders. And that again is that pin index safety system. And it's used to attach the e-cylinders to the machine in order to prevent the connection of the wrong gas cylinder. So let's talk about what that looks like for anyone who may not have seen what the pin index safety system looks like. Imagine the possibility for there to be five little holes all in a line on the post of that e-cylinder. Now picture that there are actually only two out of those five little holes present, and they're positioned according to which gas is in the cylinder. The hanger yoke then has pins in it that match the holes on the post of the cylinder. Air has pins and holes in positions one and five, for example. Oxygen has pins and holes in two and five, and nitrous in three and five. So in either case, it's totally possible to force the, the dis hose where it doesn't go or attach the piss hanger yoke to the wrong cylinder with some force as well. It's extremely important to be vigilant when connecting these hoses and cylinders because if it's done correctly, the repercussions could be devastating. Let's get into a little bit now about the differences between these cylinders. I'm sure we've all seen an oxygen cylinder or two in the, in the ICU and everything, but I don't know, we haven't maybe considered before what, what kinds of regulations and things there are that have to do with them. So we'll jump right into here with air. An air cylinder in the United States is denoted by the color yellow, and its maximum pressure is 1900 PSI. The maximum fill volume of that cylinder is 625 milliliters, and as we've said before, we'll go over it again, that pin configuration is 1 and 5. Oxygen's United States color is green. Its maximum fill pressure is 1900 PSI, and its maximum volume is 660 milliliters. Again, its pin configuration is 2 and 5. Nitrous, its United States color is blue. Its maximum fill pressure is 745 PSI, 
its maximum volume is 1,590 milliliters, and its pin configuration is three and five. So now that we've gone over the cylinders a little bit, how do we know how much time we have left based on the pressure reading of any cylinder? So this is a great example of why it's important to know the max pressure related to the max volume. So let's use oxygen as an example. If the cylinder says the pressure is at 1900 PSI, we know that it's full and contains 660 mils of oxygen. So if we needed to put oxygen on our patient at a flow rate of three liters per minute, the tank would last for 220 minutes. We find that answer by dividing the 660 liters of oxygen by three liters per minute to obtain the amount of time we have before the tank's empty. So let's try another example. Your cylinder reads 950 PSI. So we know that the tank, the oxygen tank is half full. Half of 660 liters is 330 liters. If you're going to run your patient on 10 liters per minute of oxygen, the tank will last you about 33 minutes. So I know that's kind of odd to hear mathematical equations verbally. So, so we've included um, both of these examples. Uh, actually, the equations are written out in the show notes if anyone wants a better visual representation of the equations. So that concept we just went over, that's true for oxygen and air, but it is not true for nitrous. Um, and that's because nitrous is actually stored as a liquid and it easily vaporizes at room temperature. The liquid turns into gas little by little as it's used within that nitrous tank. So the pressure gauge reads 745 PSI until all the liquid has vaporized, at which point the cylinder is about three quarters empty or so and has about 400 milliliters left. Therefore, um, if your nitrous cylinder uh, ever reads less than 745 PSI, you should, you should change it pretty quickly because it's, it's gonna run out of its gas pretty soon. So now we've gone through uh, the supply part of, of the anesthesia machine, let's go ahead and move on to processing. And we're gonna discuss how gas flows through that anesthesia machine. We'll hit on safety devices, flow meters, and vaporizers, plus a couple of other features like the oxygen flush valve. So gas is processed inside the anesthesia, ma anesthesia machine up to the common gas outlet. The devices in the machine that process gas are the oxygen pressure failure device, the flow meters, the low oxygen pressure alarms, the second stage regulator, the oxygen flush valve, the vaporizers, as well as the check valves and the common gas outlet. So let's start back from the beginning with that oxygen pressure failure device. It actually triggers an alarm if the pipeline pressure falls below 28 to 30 PSI. The purpose of it is to monitor and protect against low oxygen pressure. It can alert for things such as an empty oxygen tank, a drop in pipeline pressure, a disconnected oxygen hose, and it also can stop or proportionally limit nitrous flow if you're running nitrous for low pipeline pressure as well. And so just to like really hit home here, the alert is for low pressure, not oxygen concentration. So if you have a pipeline crossover, and if for some reason, like we talked about before, you do happen to get that hose into the wrong gas supply and you have that pipeline crossover, it will not trigger the alarm to go off. Um, in particular, that oxygen pressure failure alarm again. Uh, so in order to check this alarm, you can turn your flows on, oxygen and air, for example, and then you'll go ahead and disconnect those same hoses from the wall or that overhead boom. Or if you're using the tank on the back of the machine, disconnect the oxygen or air tank. And then um, the low pressure alarm should be triggered by by doing these two different activities, depending on what kind of fresh gas flows you're gonna use. Okay, let's move on to the flow meters now. So traditionally, like what would be in the wall of a PACU or something, that, that type of flow meter is called a Thorpe tube. And it's also what the auxiliary oxygen flow meter looks like that's kind of off to the side of most anesthesia machines. Um, but as far as on the front, the face of the anesthesia machine, those are more digital displays now uh, instead of actually being Thorpe tubes. These flow meters are the beginning of low pressure. 
So traditionally, a Thorpe tube has a variable orifice with that indicator float, and all around it is called that annular space that surrounds it. And the float has a, a narrow base, and it's wider at the top. So what happens is that fresh gas flows push that float up, and gravity pulls it down, and that's how it maintains its kind of floating quality. The flow rate of the flow meters is dependent on turbulent or laminar flow. And just a quick reminder, laminar or smooth flow is determined by viscosity. And that is according to Poisy's law. And as a reminder, that law states that the flow is related to viscosity. The pressure gradient and the length and diameter of the tube that the gas is flowing through. And now conversely, turbulent flow is determined by density. And that's according to Graham's law, where the flow rate is directly proportional to the pressure on the other side of the tube and inversely proportional to the density of the gas. So for example, in an area of high altitude, the atmospheric pressure decreases, as does the density of the gases. Therefore, the flow rate of a gas would be higher than the flow rate set on that flow meter. So the flow meter controls and measures the amount of fresh gas flows traveling toward the vaporizers and common gas outlet. Um, and then it's really, the position is very important in, in uh, for example, if you've got nitrous air and oxygen, oxygen really needs to be in the far right position, or if your machine's set up sort of differently, it needs to be closest to the common gas outlet. And that ensures the safest prevention of hypoxic mixtures in the event of a flow meter leak. So that means that oxygen will be the most downstream. Um, and actually, there are no safety checks after the flow meters besides the oxygen analyzer. And even if you have this correct positioning, uh, it's still not perfect. Uh, for example, if that oxygen flow meter is leaking, air and nitrous can still get past it and unfortunately create a hypoxic mixture. So uh, the position is, is definitely the most important, but we still need to be vigilant and watch our monitors closely in the event of, of a leak or something like that. So we'll move on now to low oxygen pressure alarms, and those in fact prevent hypoxic mixtures of less than 25% FiO2. Um, the device is actually ineffective against pipeline crossover though, and, and those leaks we just talked about that are distal to the flow meter. Um, they're also ineffective against the administration of a third gas or other uh, mechanical failures. Next is the oxygen second stage regulator. Uh, some older machines have this, and, and again, it's in order to drop that pipeline and cylinder pressure a second time if, it, if it's needed. Uh, the oxygen flush valve is next, and it, is, it signifies the end of intermittent pressure and the beginning of the low pressure system. It allows oxygen to travel from intermediate pressure right to the circuit, and it bypasses that low pressure system. So I really want to highlight here that the pressures can be 50 PSI and the flows can range from 35 to 75 liters per minute, which we know is significantly higher than the pressure in the flows from those flow meters. So by pushing that oxygen flush valve, you uh, really significantly increase your patient's risk for barotrauma. So it's a good idea that if you need to fill up your reservoir bag, it's much better to just increase your flows rather than, than going right for that flush valve. Pushing it too much can also dilute the concentration of your volatile anesthetic to levels uh, lower than desired and your patient can wake up or move. So better uh, not to push it too much if you can help it. So let's go ahead and move on to the vaporizers by first talking about vapor pressure as a, as a little refresher here. So vapor pressure is the pressure of a vapor that's in contact with its liquid form while in equilibrium. And in this case, equilibrium means that there are equal amounts of liquid becoming gas and gas becoming liquid. And vapor pressure is only affected by liquid and temperature. The higher the vapor pressure, the more the liquid wants to evaporate, and that's what we refer to as volatility. So for example, desflurane's vapor pressure is 669, which is very high. And that means that it really wants to evaporate. It's very volatile. So then again, regarding vapor pressure, when heat is applied to that, that vaporizer, that container, there's a rise in vapor pressure and less anesthetic gas is available. 
Whereas when cold is applied to the container, there's a fall in vapor pressure and more anesthetic gas is available. So now that we've talked about vapor pressure a little bit, we'll go ahead and uh, move on to discussing the variable bypass vaporizer. We'll go over the structure of the vaporizer related to how it works, as well as the flow of gas through it. Then a little bit about how the pressure, temperature, and altitude influences that flow, and wrap it up with some special considerations. And then after that, we'll follow up with uh, some of the differences between the variable bypass vaporizer and the desflurane-specific vaporizer. So those variable bypass vaporizers are agent-specific, and they're temperature-corrected in order to deliver um, a constant concentration regardless of that temperature change or flow. So by turning the dial on a vaporizer, a small fraction of fresh gas flow is diverted to flow over the liquid anesthetic in the vaporizing chamber in order to pick up that vapor. So what's inside there is a series of baffles and wicks, and uh, those are in place to ensure full saturation of the carrier gas with the anesthetic liquid. That gas then combines with the other fraction of fresh gas flow that bypassed the vaporizing chamber originally, and that's why it's called a variable bypass vaporizer. So the same amount of gas enters and exits the vaporizers, um, the temperature is actually controlled by two metal strips that are welded together, and those expand and contract in reaction to the temperature changes. The temperature decreases, and that causes a strip, one of the strips, to contract and bend, allowing more gas to flow through. Um, and then if the temperature rises, the bimetallic strips bend the other way and allow less fresh gas flow through. And the vaporizers are able to actually compensate for changes in ambient pressure. Um, the partial pressure of the anesthetic is what determines its concentration effects. And again, we'll remind everyone that the partial pressure is the, um, the amount of two gases together. Just, you know, say you have 21% oxygen and 79% some other gas, the partial pressure then is 21%. The partial pressure is mostly unchanged because the dial compensates for changes in pressure with a change in altitude, so there is no need to compensate for altitude changes with those variable bypass vaporizers. And again, these vaporizers are often agent-specific. They have keyed filling ports in order to prevent uh, filling them with the wrong anesthetic. Also, tilting or tipping the vaporizers can cause the bypass chamber to be filled with anesthetic liquid and cause an increase in concentration of the anesthetic delivered. Um, so if that happens, you actually you really need to take that vaporizer off, either flush it all the way through, and a lot of times it needs to be recalibrated by the manufacturer, in fact. Moving on to something called the pumping effect, that can occur if fresh gas flows are low and there's fluctuations in pressure due to positive pressure ventilation, which causes a, a reversal of flow through the vaporizer and affects the concentration of the agent delivered. Newer machines actually have a check valve between the oxygen flush valve and the vaporizer in order to prevent this. And just to wrap it up here, there is no output alarm for variable bypass vaporizers. So if your isofluorine or sevafluorine is empty, for example, the only way you're gonna know is either your patient wakes up or hopefully you'll notice that your uh, fraction of inspired sevo or iso is decreasing and then it'll alert you to go ahead and check and see how much you have left. But it's probably a good idea in between cases or during a long case to monitor about uh, uh, how much anesthetic gas you have left in your, in your vaporizers. So we'll switch gears here and focus on that special desflurane vaporizer we talked about. Due to desflurane's high vapor pressure, um, it allows desflurane to almost boil at room temperature, which, which uh, gives it the requirement to have its own vaporizer. So the, the desflurane vaporizer heats to 39 degrees Celsius, which is slightly higher than its boiling point. And unlike the variable bypass vaporizers, the fresh gas flows actually do not pass through the desflurane sump. Instead, pure vapor joins the fresh gas flows just before exiting the vaporizer. The concentration and not the partial pressure of vapor uh, released is determined by what the dial is set at as well as what the fresh gas flow rate is. And because of this, the vaporizer cannot compensate for changes in elevation. So the concentration of, des of the desflurane vapor in the vaporizer is not changed, 
but the partial pressure of the vapor will be decreased in the patient's alveoli due to the decrease in ambient pressure at those higher altitudes. So therefore, uh, in higher elevations, you need to use a higher concentration to compensate, and there is unfortunately no cal calibration that exists on that desflurane vaporizer to overcome this change. Fortunately, the desflurane does have an alarm that if your uh, levels of liquid anesthetic in there are getting low, it'll let you know that that's happening. Um, okay, so in addition to the vaporizers, we have those check valves, and those are located between the vaporizers and the common gas outlet. Those allow for gas flow in one direction only, which is, which is really important. And then lastly here, we're going to wrap it up with the common gas outlet, and that's where the gas is delivered to the breathing system via the gas delivery hose. And on most newer machines, it's an internal part of the machine, so not, not really something you'll see sticking out or anything. Okay, now that we've gone through the processing, we're moving on now to the delivery of the gas. We'll go over how the gas goes from the machine to the patient and then comes back. So gas is delivered to the patient via the breathing circuit. The patient inhales and exhales, and the exhaled gas then goes through the, the carbon dioxide absorber and is either recycled through the machine or it's disposed of. So generally, the gas delivery hose connects the common gas outlet in the circuit. Then it connects to the, the different breathing circuits. And of course, there's several to choose from, but the most common one that we'll touch on here is the circle system. Um, and then as well, uh, part of the breathing circuit is the APL valve. And we've said a little bit about it, but of course it limits the pressure during manual ventilation. And it's an important, it's an important piece of the machine and the, the circuit to understand and be comfortable with. And on, although we don't have the time to go into great depth about all the ways that it functions, I do want to remind listeners that the APL valve should remain open when it's not in use. Putting a patient on manual ventilation with a closed APL valve can quickly lead to barotrauma. So, so after, those, uh, after the gas gets through those breathing circuits, the patient inhales it, exhales it, and it gets into the CO2 absorber. The CO2 absorbers are carbon dioxide absorbent that removes exhaled carbon dioxide from the machine. It, uh, it functions in order to make rebreathing and recycling of exhaled gases possible. So it saves a lot of money and resources in that way, and it's, it makes it better for the environment too. So we'll, we'll talk about two different kinds of CO2 absorbents. There's soda lime and carbon hydroxide. And we'll start with that soda lime. In soda lime, there's a series of reactions involving sodium hydroxide that occurs on the surface of all those little granules that you see in one of the absorber containers. The activator, sodium hydroxide, combines with carbonate ions made from carbon dioxide and water in a reversible reaction that produces water and heat. So as the reactions continue, the CO2 absorbent pH decreases to a, a critical level, and this causes the ethyl violet to change from colorless to a bluish purple color. And this tells you when the CO2 absorber is exhausted. Another way, in addition to that color, is your fraction of inspired CO2 will be elevated and your end tidal CO2 waveform won't touch the baseline any longer. These are ways you can tell that it's exhausted if you happen to be in the middle of a case with a patient on the ventilator. So it's a good idea uh, in, the, in, in all situations really to have a spare absorber in the room. So just remember if you do decide to change it in the middle of a case, the MAC of your volatile anesthetic will significantly decrease. So it may be necessary to temporarily increase your flows and your percentage of anesthetic gas in order to maintain your, your MAC in your patient. The color change of that bluish purple can fade uh, when the anesthesia machine is not in use. And this doesn't mean that the soda line regenerated. So it's recommended to assess the absorbent at the end of a case and change if, if needed. It's, it's a lot easier to change it between patients than, than what we just talked about and have, it, and have to do it in or during the case, excuse me. So we shouldn't let an exhausted CO2 absorber sit overnight because in the morning it, it may not appear to be exhausted, so it might switch back to that whitish color and someone might think it's okay to use again. So if you notice that, that it's starting to get pretty purple, uh, go ahead and change that so you don't leave that for the next person to do. Those granules inside the absorber do dry out over time. 
And in fact, they dry out more quickly the higher and longer your flows are on. So sodalime actually degrades uh, most current volatile anesthetics, and this degradation occurs more quickly with the dry absorbent. Therefore, we should turn off oxygen at the end of each case, even if so even if the fresh gas flows are uh, left on over the weekend or overnight, say, by mistake, change the absorber no matter the color uh, and use low flows when possible. So we were talking about how most, um, most volatile anesthetics are degraded by that soda lime. Sevaflorin is actually degraded the most and desflurane is degraded the least. But this degradation does lead to the production of compound A, carbon monoxide, and other compounds. And we may, we may have heard of compound A before, and that will remind everyone is the potential, it has the potential to cause renal injury at concentrations of 25 to 50 parts per million, which are achievable in cl clinical practice with very low fresh gas flows. According to the manufacturer of Sevaflorane, the product information states that to minimize the risk of exposure to compound A, Sevaflorane exposure should not exceed two MAC hours at flow rates of one to less than two liters per minute. This has so far only been shown actually in animal studies. So um, many, there, there have been more studies done that demonstrate that it is safe to run SIVO at lower flows. Um, however, you know, that's up to the, the provider. There's probably a lot that feel one way that, that low flows are safe and then some that do in, in fact run, run their flows at the two liter per minute recommendation from the manufacturer in order to minimize that risk of exposure to compound A. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that calcium hydroxide lime, which is the other form of absorber now. It's also called AMSORB. Uh, it does not contain the activator sodium hydroxide and instead contains more calcium hydroxide. The absence of sodium hydroxide results in less degradation of volatile anesthetics and therefore that avoids that problem of compound A and carbon monoxide production that we just talked about with the soda lime. Uh, so another piece uh, is the ventilators and they're a big part of the delivery system and we're gonna discuss some of the different settings uh, just a little bit later. The monitors of the delivery system uh, monitor oxygen concentration, um, the disconnection of various parts of the system in the event that that happens the spirometry, volumes and flows of the gases through the machine, um, capnography such as end tidal CO2, as well as different airway pressures. And one thing I really want to touch on here is that oxygen analyzer. And it measures oxygen concentration and not pressure. There are two different kinds. Some are self-calibrating and some must be calibrated daily. Um, they can detect pipeline crossover. This is the only thing that can do that. And they can also detect a circuit leak. And I just want to throw in there a little tidbit is that the most common leak site is the Y piece of the circuit and the carbon dioxide absorber. Sometimes it's a little tricky to get that clicked in the right spot. So if you've recently changed it and you find yourself having a big old leak, you might try to reinstall that if, uh, if you're having a problem and sometimes that's the case. Some additional pieces are the ventilator alarms, PEEP, and, humidic and humidification. So now we've gone through the delivery system, let's go ahead and move over to the disposal system which includes the scavenger system and it removes anesthetic waste gases from the circuit and ventilator and safely eliminates them from the operating room. Whatever the fresh gas flow is set at, is the amount that has to be scavenged each minute. The components of that scavenger system include the gas collection assembly, and that starts at the APL valve and the ventilator relief valve. Then we go on to the transfer tubing, the scavenging interface, the gas disposal tubing, the gas disposal assembly, and then finally that scavenged gas leaves the OR. There are two interfaces of scavenging systems. Uh, the first is closed and it's actually not used in the United States anymore because of the valves used in it um, had a tendency to fail and they could create barotrauma. We use the open interface um, and, it, and it's open to the atmosphere actually. There's no valves but it does require suction and it, therefore it makes it an active system. 
So each exhalation the patient makes goes to the bottom of the reservoir and is drawn out by suction before the next exhalation. Unfortunately, if the suction fails, all the exhalation gases will be released into the operating room. Um, but on the flip side, too much suction makes the room um, takes room air into the scavenging system. Um, so, so as we said here, the high, there's a higher risk of exposing the OR to those waste gases. So something to keep in mind is that if you smell any gases, the, the cause does need to be found because if you're able to smell the volatile agent, the agent is between 5 and 300 parts per million, which is far above OSHA standards, uh, which just, just for your information, those standards are 2 parts per million of halogenated agents and 25 parts per million of nitrous oxide. So now we have wrapped up the supply, processing, delivery, and disposal aspects of the machine, we'll move on to the types of machines that there are. And those two, the two different ones are pneumatic-driven and piston-driven. Now, the pneumatic-driven ventilator, um, the way that it works is during expiration, pneumatic bellows either ascend or descend, and then drive gas then causes inspiration, and then the bellows will collapse in either direction. The ascending bellows uh, are safer um, as opposed to the descending because at most they'll only partially ascend if there's a leak or disconnection somewhere, whereas if you have descending bellows, you might not know that there's a leak or, or disconnection because of gravity, the bellows will will naturally want to descend, so it might it might trick you. So. Most of the pneumatic ventilators uh, nowadays have ascending um, bellows. So now we'll move over to the piston-driven ventilator. It uses an electric motor instead of being driven by gas in order to compress gas into a piston during inspiration. In some ventilators, the piston is, is out of view, such as the Draeger Apollo machine, and others, such as the Draeger Fabius, um, it is piston driven, but it also has bellows that are visible through a window. So in the piston driven ventilators, there are positive and negative pressure relief valves built in. The positive pressure relief valve opens if the pressure in the piston is greater than 75 plus or minus 5 centimeters of water. If the pressure in the piston drops below negative 8 centimeters of water, the negative pressure relief valve opens and pulls in room air through the piston in order to protect the patient from negative end expiratory pressure. Some advantages of the piston-driven ventilator are that it's quiet, there's no mandatory PEEP setting, there's a high accuracy of tidal volume delivered due to the compliance um, and leak compensation, the rigid piston design and fresh gas decoupling, which prevents fresh, fresh gas flows from being added to the tidal volume, which is done with, uh, with the bellows by diverting them to the manual breathing bag during inspiration or by compensating for the fresh gas flows using feedback sensors to adjust the tidal volume. There are fewer compliance losses with the piston-driven ventilator and it's also electricity driven. So if you lose your uh, pipeline pressure and the supply is lost in a pneumatic driven machine, your, your ventilator will not function anymore. But in a piston driven, that's not a problem. Some, uh, some disadvantages, excuse me, of the piston driven machine is that you cannot visualize the bellows in most situations. And so with patient disconnect or when the patient is uh, over breathing the ventilator settings, however, you can, you can look at the manual breathing bag in those situations and it can help you a little bit. And then although we said it was an advantage, being quiet is also a disadvantage of the piston driven ventilator because you can't hear its regular cycling as well as you can in the pneumatic system. So whether you have a piston or a pneumatic driven machine, a machine check must be performed every day prior to patient use. Some machine self-tests are automatic and some have a more manual in involvement. Um, in addition, a leak test should also be performed in between each patient use. On some machines, and I'll speak to the ones that I've used specifically, I've, I'm a little familiar with the Daytex Omida um, and I've frequently used the Draeger Apollo and the Draeger Fabius machines. 
So, for example, that Drager Apollo machine, it's its machine check and the leak test is is pretty automatic. There's not a ton of involvement that the user has to do in order to confirm the the leak test. But like that uh, Datex Omedia and the Drager Fabius, to do the leak check, you would close the APL valve and pressurize the circuit to about 30 centimeters of water or so pressure. And you'll observe, um, you wanna make sure that the vent will alarm high pressure and then continuous pressure. So if both of those alarms come up, that means your leak test has passed. We'll switch gears here and move on to mechanical ventilation. And, and again, we could probably do a whole podcast just on, this me- uh, just on different mechanical ventilation settings, but we thought it would be really beneficial to go through at least three of the most common uh, ventilator settings that, that you can use. So we'll go ahead and jump right in here to the first one I wanna talk about, which is the pressure control setting. And in this setting, the peak inspiratory pressure is limited, and the cycle is controlled by time. So the inspiration flow is strongest at the start of inspiration in order to reach the set pressure quickly, and then it declines to a level just sufficient to maintain that pressure. The increase in the mean airway pressure can lead to decreased venous return and cardiac output. So that's something to keep in mind based on your patient's condition and the type of surgery that that they're having. So tidal volume is not controlled in this, in this pressure-controlled ventilation, and it will increase if there is a decrease in resistance or an increase in compliance. So these patients need to really be monitored closely if they're going to be put on this, on this um, setting. Uh, an example of this would say, you know, if you have a patient having something really common like a lap coli, uh, and they create that pneumoperitoneum, uh, you have to be really vigilant to listen for the surgeon to say that the gas is being shut off so you can uh, make sure that the patient isn't about to receive, you know, 1,200 milliliters of a tidal volume or something like that. Uh, another example would be if the patient is going to return to a supine position if they've been in steep Trendelenburg or something like that. That can also increase the amount of tidal volume that they're going to receive. And then here, the opposite of, is true. If the compliance decreases or the resistance increases, the tidal volume is going to significantly decrease. And a situation that this could happen would be like a, a bronchospasm or a, a kinked endotracheal tube. So if the desired tidal volume, we'll say, is 5 to 7 milliliters per kilogram and is not reached, the pressure maximum or the rate of inspiratory flow can be increased. Let's say that you have a patient on volume control and your desired tidal volume is set to 550 milliliters, but the peak pressures to achieve this tidal volume are variable and higher than you would like. Instead of worrying about the the high pressures, switching the patient to pressure control ventilation with a set pressure may allow your patient to achieve variable but acceptable tidal volumes without having those variable and high peak pressures. And, and I gave this example because it's a really common reason to put someone on that pressure control setting. So now let's go ahead and talk about the volume control setting. And in the volume control setting, the volume is limited, the time is cycled, and there's a constant flow. Inspiration ends when the tidal volume is reached or an excessive peak pressure is reached. And that's usually around 60 to 100 uh, millimeters of mercury pressure. The peak inspiratory pressure in volume control is not controlled, but it is monitored, so you'll be able to see how high or low it is, and uh, it rises as patient compliance decreases. So the tidal volume can be adjusted in this setting in order to prevent atelectasis. Respiratory rate can also be adjusted to keep uh, the patient's end tidal CO2 normal. And uh, as we said in in the example for pressure control, uh, a good target to shoot for is a tidal volume between five and seven milliliters per kilogram. Um, So let's touch now on the pressure support setting. It requires uh, generally a spontaneously ventilating patient. Um, A lot of times I'll put someone on pressure support, for example, maybe after I've put in an LMA and waiting for them to come back breathing Um, And maybe I'll keep them on that pressure support setting as long as they're spontaneously ventilating through that that general anesthesia case. Um, 
or I'll turn them on pressure support maybe toward the end of the case when, when I want to see if they're coming back breathing, and I'll use that sort of like as a stepping stone before putting them straight to manual uh, spontaneous ventilation. So the pressure and pressure support is, is controlled, but there is usually not a required respiratory rate. Sometimes ventilators do require a backup rate, and there are also a lot of times apnea alarms uh, in case the patient is not initiating enough of their own breaths. Some ventilators also have just an apnea kickover mode where if it, if it uh, triggers apnea for long enough, it'll put your patient back on maybe volume control ventilation for you. Um, but make sure you know what, what uh, your particular ventilator does in that situation, or at least be very vigilant when you put your patient on pressure support to make sure that they are breathing on their own. So there is usually no minute, uh, minimum required minute ventilation on pressure support, and it responds to the patient's ventilatory effort. The ventilator, excuse me, responds to the patient's ventilatory effort with a set trigger window, which is determined by the negative pressure generated by the patient's attempt to inhale. So it's, again, I'll just reiterate, it's useful to augment your tidal volume during that spontaneous ventilation um, or through the maintenance of the case. And again, frequently through uh, emergence as a stepping stone to get to that spontaneous ventilation, which is what you wanna get to prior to extubation. So now we've gone through some of the, the three most common modes of mechanical ventilation. We'll, um, we'll wrap things up here in our talk with some different troubleshooting that you can come across, which is probably uh, some of the most uh, nerve-wracking parts of the anesthesia machine. So hopefully some of these little tips and tricks will be helpful uh, for everyone listening. So first we'll talk about low pressure problems that can, that can come up. If you've got a low pressure alarm, the most common cause would be that your circuit is disconnected probably. Um, yeah, or it could even be your entitled CO2 sampling line that could come wiggled off or something like that. So just a few, a few reasons that you could be having those problems. Another one could be, again, that defective or leaking CO2 absorber. So if you've recently changed it, go ahead and check that to make sure it's uh, on there correctly. Um, leaks in that circuit or the machi anesthesia machine are some more common problems like we've touched on. Another one would be moisture that can build up within the, the flow sensors of the monitors. So pressure, volume, end tidal CO2, and vigilance can help alert to low pressure due to that circuit disconnection. So in the, in the event that you get one of these low pressure alarms and and you're not able to ventilate the patient due to the low pressure, don't, don't sit there and try to fix the problem. I mean, if you can fix it very quickly, but you should have a pretty low threshold for the amount of time you're gonna spend trying to fix whatever problem. So instead, you should take the patient off of the anesthesia machine ventilator and hand ventilate them with an Ambu bag and oxygen. And then, you know, if it's gonna be a while, you need to really consider using Tiva to keep that patient anesthetized. So we'll move on to a high pressure problem that you could have, and in that situation, you might be getting some high peak inspiratory pressures. Uh, the, the biggest thing to consider here is bronchospasm. You, another really um, common thing could also be maybe your patient is lightening up and starting to wake up and cough or buck a little bit, and you're getting those high pressure alarms. Obviously, in that case, you know what to do. Take the patient off the ventilator put them on manual and get them a little deeper before you resume your whatever ventilator setting you had going. But if they're having a bronchospasm, that again, like I said, would be a really uh, a common reason to have a high pressure problem. First, you wanna rule out patient-related causes by attempting to manually ventilate your patient. Um, again, besides that bronchospasm, some other causes of high pressure problems would be a manual malfunctioning PEEP um, a problem with your expiratory unidirectional valve or a problem with your scavenging system. So again, really to hit this point home, if you're able to ventilate the patient, do so with a bag valve mask, oxygen, and then TIVA. Don't try to fix the problem if the patient is not ventilating safely. 
Now we'll go on to oxygen pipeline supply failure. And this can occur when the pipeline pressure is lost or there is a crossover of gases between pipelines due to an error in installation or a dysfunctional safety system like that DIS system. So if there is a loss of pipeline pressure, it will be noted on the pipeline pressure gauge on the screen of your anesthesia machine. Um, if it's profound, the oxygen low pressure alarm will will sound. Um, in the event of cross connection of gases or a leak in the oxygen flow meter, there'll be a decline in the inspired oxygen concentration and you'll be alerted by the oxygen analyzer or maybe decrease in patient oxygen saturations, a decrease in the FiO2 that your patient is breathing in, um, even if you have appropriate levels of oxygen dialed in. So in order to manage this situation where you have oxygen pipeline supply failure, you should always, this is a reason if this happens, it's a reason you should always check to make sure that you have a full e-cylinder and a bag valve mask before starting a case. Um, you should definitely always trust your oxygen analyzer and you shouldn't try to fix it until, until it's proven wrong. Um, you'll want to turn your e-cylinder on and disconnect the pipeline to allow that e-cylinder to take over because remember we discussed that that e-cylinder's pressure is lower than the pipeline so unless you disconnect the pipeline from the wall or the boom it won't allow the e-cylinder to take over your fresh gas flows for you. Um, so you'll want to watch for an increase in inspired oxygen which is your FiO2. If you do transfer over to that e-cylinder uh, fresh gas flow supply, you want to use low flows and maintain your anesthesia with, uh, with your volatile agent and ensure that the FiO2 and the agent concentration are appropriate. Um, and then in this situation, you definitely want to call for help. You know, there's no point in being Superman trying to manage this all on your own and making, you know, the safety of the patient is of primary concern. Someone else can can help deal with the, the problems with the anesthesia machine while you make sure your patient is uh, being ventilated and is well anesthetized. You do want to uh, calculate the remaining time on your cylinder, and thankfully uh, we know how to right after this podcast and uh, get backup cylinders if you, if you need those. Um, don't reconnect your patient to the pipeline uh, after the problem has been fixed until the gas supply has been tested and confirmed that it's going to be adequate for your the rest of your case. Um, and if you're unable to use the circle system and your and your anesthesia machine, uh, you should go ahead and ventilate your patient with a freestanding oxygen source or room air if you have to, and initiate some sort of total IV anesthesia so that you're you can continue with the the case that's going on. So those are uh, the tips and tricks and a quick rundown here. I know it probably wasn't quick, but a rundown of the anesthesia machine, trying to be thorough and and give you all a, a good overview of the anesthesia machine and the, the parts of it and the different safety systems. And hopefully it will better prepare you in clinicals and, and CRNAs, if you're listening, remind you of some of the, the different things that might be overlooked with time and different troubleshooting tips. And hopefully that uh, it'll let you be more successful in your future practice. Ashley Shield on the anesthesia machine. Nice job. Thank you so much for that very thorough rundown. Appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely.